And he created man upright. Then man sinned. And the consequences of sin is death. So God saves man and makes a people for himself. And gives man eternal life. Undeservedly. Yet the pattern interwoven throughout both testaments is that God's people fail time and time again. And this is not speaking of only of the Old Testament saints. It's not speaking of only those in ancient Israel. It also speaks of God's people today. As we see even in the scriptures. This is why these letters, such as the letter of James, is written. Because God's people fail time and time again. Yet God continues to pursue and show us His undeserving grace. Now, when you think of our situation today, uh, to some degree, Christians are expected to live better lives, morally speaking, than the rest of the world. But as we look around, oftentimes that is not the case. Sometimes the only difference that we can see with our eyes, or better, hear with our ears, is the only difference is that Christians have Jesus Christ. Now that is not an excuse for sin, but we ought to be thankful that that makes all the difference in the world. For Jesus Christ is the embodiment. He is God's grace in the flesh. And He is the only way to know God's grace. So what this realization does for us, or, or when we are brought down so low, to realize this truth, is that it makes God the center of attention of the Scriptures, and not man. God is the one who pursues man, And God makes man his own. And the only contribution that man has to bring to the table is his own sin. But once he makes himself a body of believers, what does he do? He weds that body. He weds the church like a bridegroom weds a bride. Unfortunately, this bride always seems to have her eyes fixed on someone else more times than not. She goes astray in this world. And she continues to go astray up until the wedding day. And the consummation of the wedding. This passage shows us how God regards His unfaithful bride And what he does to bring her back. What he does to bring her back. But also here we see a description of what we call a paradox. Two truths that seem to contradict each other. But are nonetheless true. We are saints and sinners at the same time. Though she is his bride, sometimes it is as if she is acting as an enemy of God. 
And she is described this way. And this is in order to warn her that she may examine herself. And yet, we still see the longing of God and the grace of God through it all. So first, what is most striking about this text is that he is addressing God's people and how he addresses God's people. He takes a radical turn from beloved brothers to you adulterous people. We see this pattern in Isaiah and Jeremiah and James is following the same pattern of Old Testament saints here, Old Testament prophets. God's people are pictured in her wilderness wandering as the adulterous bride of God throughout the Old Testament. We see this in the relationship between Hosea and Gomer. As a picture of the relationship between God and His people. And how God always seeks and receives His people back after they sin. Now when the church is accused of being adulterous, it often has to do with her idolatry. But why such strong words? What has gone wrong? Where is their adultery found? Now if you've been reading through James, you, you, you start to ask, why all this endless questioning? Most of the letters found in questions. So he asks, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So our adultery is found in becoming a friend of the world. You, you see, in James's day, friendship was far more serious and far more of an intimate relationship than it is today. Back in those days, when you become someone's friend, it means you have a share in everything together. Closer to being husband and wife. So now, to know whether or not we are enemies of God, we need to know what is it? What does it mean to be a friend of the world? This very question has been debated in churches around the globe since her inception. Oftentimes we have gotten it wrong when we go into extremes. You think of the monks. You think of the monks when they tried to escape the world, but they brought the world with them because the world was in them. You think of the temperance movement. Abstaining from everything except for their own anger and hatred. The world was in them. They became more worldly than before when they didn't drink alcohol. That abstaining from certain things made them worldly. But being a friend of the world for James is not being a friend of people 
But it has to do with being a friend or uniting to the surrounding culture and what cultivates that culture. It is the world that is driven by man's sinful desires and passions. As, as John says, do not love the world or the things in the world. Wait, is he saying that we ought to hate people, animals, food, nature, the arts, society? Is that what he means? Well, no. Because he clarifies, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, what, what is in the world? Well, we are in the world. Let's begin with ourselves. The desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So to be a friend of the world is to be a friend of sin, wherever it is found. But as he says, it is like trying to catch the wind, because it is all passing away. To be a friend of the world expresses itself in many ways, such as what he, James has addressed already. Pride, infighting, divisions, envy, jealousy, Selfish ambitions. This is when our God becomes our belly and our belly becomes our only concern. James was speaking to so-called leaders in the church who were seeking to use the church as a platform for fame, fortune, worldly dominance, and control. Sound familiar? That's what is common in our culture. The church has seen many fringe movements, even today, that cause more disturbance than peace and purity in the church. And all along the way, our gaze becomes fixed somewhere else other than Christ. When our agendas become confused about what we are here for. And it becomes idolatry, and we become Friends of the world, fighting like the world, chasing our passions like the world. Because the world is driven by senseless passion. Notice today how for the most part, we do not think critically anymore. We do, we do not reason anymore. We no longer reason with the help of God's Spirit Rather, we are easily motivated and driven by our own emotions and passions. Even in the church. That is the culture of today. But to be a friend of this world is to be an enemy of God. It is contradictory. And if our churches are being confused with being friends of the world then we are not truly living up to what we are called to. We are called to be friends of God. As Jesus called us His friends, if we do what, we tell him, uh, what He told us to do. It is far more important to be loved by God than to be loved by the world. The way to know whether or not you are on the right track is when the surrounding culture and the world hates you. And what you preach, 
and what the church stands for. As we are beginning to witness more and more today when Christians are being silenced for what they believe in. That's when we know we are doing the right thing. When the world hates us. Not because we're obnoxious. Not because we're loudmouths. But because we are standing up for the truth in the face of lies. How sad it is when we begin to look like and speak like and act like the world. How often do we desire to be God's enemies by being friends with the world and and its system and its way of life? We often don't notice, but it can slowly creep in in the way we speak and the way we act. But how great is our God? How great is our God? It says, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Remember, He is speaking to Christians here. He is speaking to the church. So secondly, He continues this battery of questions of what it would look like if He was uh, in a bad cop, good cop situation. Right now, He just switched over to the good cop. He says, or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealousy over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? We see this throughout the Old Testament that God longs for his wayward bride. Just like Hosea, who constantly longed for his adulterous wife. God longs for his people with jealousy. Not a sinful jealousy, but a rightful jealousy as a husband for his wife who is about to be snatched away by an intruder. This is why we say at weddings, what God hath joined together, let no one put asunder. Because the wrath of God will be on the heels of that intruder. And oftentimes this intruder is our own idolatry. God says regarding our own idolatry, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. This reminds me of the Uncle Sam poster. That says, when you join the army, you're giving up your entire life. And it says, I want you. Meaning your entire person. When you join the army, you can't say, well, I'll be partly devoted. But then I got some other things to do on the side. But you're giving up your entire person. Well, God wants your entire person, your entire devotion. Just as a husband wants his wife's entire devotion. Because he has a right to it. He has a right to it. This isn't an open marriage. Many have become Christians and think to themselves, well, I know Christ died for me. I know the gospel. So this means I can enjoy all that the world has for me. I can still indulge in my sin. 
I'm not talking about going to the cinema or dancing. But I can enjoy all that the world has to offer, what drives the world, and what would drive us to go around town like Gomer, seeking to be satisfied somewhere else by someone else other than God. As I said before, this husband isn't stingy. He gives us all things to enjoy. We don't need to go around town seeking idols to satisfy what God is supposed to satisfy us with. For He is the husband of the church. Brothers and sisters, we have a bridegroom who desires our very souls. This is why Jesus says, Whoever loves father or mother or son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He desires our all in all and our full attention. But how often do we run? Do we run to devote ourselves to other gods and idols that will one day be taken down by God? It will be stripped away. It will lie in a sickbed with Jezebel. And we treat the church as a springboard for the agendas of those idols. Whatever they are. Societal idols. Political idols. Cultural idols. Money, sex, power. We go on a quest or journey for these idols to be known rather than our God to be known. How shameful. We think we needed reformation back when we were in Rome, but we need reformation now as well. We need reformation for some of the same reasons today. Think of all the church's idols today. And think of how Jesus said, repent or perish. Well, guess what? It has been this way since its inception. It has been here since James wrote this letter. Think of our own thirst for power and control. And what it has done for the church over the centuries. But fortunately for us, there is an overriding truth that remains unmoved in this text. This truth cannot be moved by anyone. And this truth, and I know it has been overdone by some, but it is true, this truth is that God loves us. That's the point of this text. More than anything else, is that God loves His people. And He longs for us as His church. He longs for the spirit of life that He breathed in within us. When He made us temples of the living God, it says, for God so loved the world. That is the people of the world, the nations. Not the culture of the world driven by sin, but He loved the world. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son for us. This is the deep love and longing He has for His people to turn and return to Him. 
But sadly, knowing that we have become friends of the world, what do we do? What can we do? Can we turn to Him? I think by this point we should be left undone and do nothing because I believe that is the wrong question. The real question we should ask is, what does God do? First, what does God do? See, God doesn't just sit there and does nothing about it. How often have you heard it said, God is just waiting for you to come to Him. God is just longing for you. Full stop. That's it. He's just longing. He doesn't do anything about it. You probably heard it in Big Ten or street revivals. But no. God does something about it. Specifically for His church, for His people, for His bride. And here's the answer and the good news in this passage. It says, but He gives more grace. More grace. In light of all that has gone wrong in the church, like when Paul says, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Our good God, who never stops giving good gifts to His children, gives us more grace. He is not speaking of saving grace, because He is speaking to a people who are already saved. This is the continual forgiving grace we need every day. This is the enabling grace that allows us to get up when we fall. This is speaking of grace given to us to live as Christians. For God is faithful and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation He will also provide a way of escape. That is grace. That is grace. But even when we do sin as a child of God, we can go to Him. With confidence to draw near to God. To draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. How often is it the case when we fall into grievous sins or various sins, we find it hard to go back to God in prayer. We run and hide from fellowship with God like Adam and Eve, even when we say to ourselves, I did it again. There's no way He'll forgive me again. It is the same sin that keeps me away from God. Away from prayer. Away from fellowship. But James says, He gives more grace. Now to some of us, we're probably thinking, yeah, He gives more grace, but that's only to a specific group of strong Christians. These are those who don't fall all that much. They don't sin all that much. At least by outward appearances. Actually, they don't really fall. They just stumble every once in a while. But Jesus defines the characteristics of a Christian in the Sermon on the Mount. And these Christians are not a very strong group of people. Actually, they would be regarded as weak in the eyes of the world. 
They are a poor bunch of have-nots. The only way that they are triumphant over anything is through the one whom they are united to. The one who gathers them under his wings. They're not strong in themselves. They can't defeat temptation in themselves. They are poor in spirit. Unable to pick up their own heads when they fall. So he, get, he gets specific as to the one who receives more grace. He, re, he quotes Proverbs chapter 3.34. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So the, see the proud in these congregations, they desire to become superstars of the faith. They desire to be self-sufficient, self-reliant, and they want to run the show. There's an imbalance of power in their minds. And these desires ultimately lead to idolatry, as many theologians of the past have concluded that every sin is tied to pride. The pride of self and the pride of life. It is living void of God altogether. In fact, the proud sets up ways to oppose God's rule in their lives. And it says that God holds them in derision. And to make matters worse in our day, pride is often confused with humility. Look what I have achieved. Couldn't do it without all these people, of course, yeah, but it's really about me. No thanks to God. But Jesus pronounces woes on the proud. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. These are the proud, not just because of what they have. It's not about being rich. That text wasn't about being rich or poor. It doesn't matter what your status is. It is the pride that is underlying that status. You can be poor and be prideful of your poverty. You can be rich and be prideful or be humble. Either status. The problem is relying on worldly achievements for worldly status. And they believe that success in this life equates with success in the next. But that is not true. To be proud is a dangerous place to be in. It is to be self-reliant, independent of God. And it is at the end of the day, idolatrous and adulterous. And this is in contrast to the humble. These are the needy, the dependent, the bottom of the rung of society. Those who rely totally on God for all that they need and thank Him for all that they have. 
In fact, God gives us more grace in the midst of it. God gives grace in order to humble us. And then He gives us more grace upon more grace. Tradition has it that James was called James the Just. And not because he was always seeking social justice. That has nothing to do with being just in those days. But it was because of his piety. And his piety was drawn from his own sense of neediness. And not his own ability. Not his own self-confidence. It wasn't drawn from his own spiritual practices either. It is believed that he was often found alone in the temple, kneeling and praying, so much so that his knees eventually became as hard as the knees of a camel. Now consider ourselves. How many of us have soft knees? But this was a man who saw his own neediness. He was humbled before God, knowing he couldn't do anything or be anyone without Him. So humility meets us first in the prayer closet. Humility meets us in the prayer closet. He gives grace to the humble, not the self-sufficient, not the righteous or perfect ones in their own eyes, who have it all figured it out, not to the wise according to their own eyes, according to the world. There are many who are self-justified in their reasoning. They reason away all of their sins. They say, I'm just a man of my day. But sin was sin Yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Sin is still sin. But to the wise, according to God, are those who confess their sins to God, who humble themselves before God. These are the humble. These are the meek. These are those whom He gives more grace. While the self-righteous, the blind, those who do not need grace who do not need Jesus Christ as their Savior, all they can expect is true judgment from a just judge. If you do not need grace or forgiveness, then you will receive judgment for every deed and every word you have ever said, every deed you have ever done. Imagine that. Imagine that. Coming from an almighty God who has power over every element on this planet. If you do not need grace, then you will receive judgment. But for the one who bows before his throne with penitence, he gives more grace. So you may be saying to yourselves, But I have failed. I have failed as a parent. I have failed as a child. There's more grace. I have failed in my Christian walk time and time again. 
but there's more grace. I have failed as a brother or sister in the Lord. There's more grace. His grace is unending and eternal. It is this grace that enable us, enables us to grow in Christ's likeness. It is a constant cycle all the way up to glory. This is not at all presuming on God's grace. No. But grace brings us to this realization that that is the Christian life. We will fall time and time again. But there is more grace to enable us to come back to God and to walk the Christian life. Now consider the grace that was reflected in the life of Christ. Not because of sin. He had no sin. But His human flesh was enabled to accomplish what He came to do in conquering sin, Satan, and death by dying and rising from the dead. Now, our problem is sin. But God gives more grace that we may be humbled and live as Christians in a fallen world. There is always more grace for you if you are a child of God. So you have complete access to His throne of grace. To come before it at any time. Isn't that amazing? That's amazing grace. In our Christian lives. That we can speak to God and come to God at any point. We don't have to run like Adam and Eve ran. Again, this is in no way to give a pass on sin. But the only way to grow in holiness is, to, is by God's grace. That's the only way. We don't grow by climbing up steps. Well, I conquered that one. I'll just keep walking up this next one. And then you fall to that one again. But it is by God's enabling grace. Go back to God. Coming back to Him. In describing the coming of our Lord into this world, John speaks of Christ's divine nature. And how that from that divine nature or from His fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. More grace and more grace. This is the message that James is trying to encourage us with here. It is all coming from Christ's divine nature. It is coming from God Himself. Because it is only in Christ through the blood of the new covenant, that you will find grace upon grace in your, in your time of need. Amen. Let us pray.